If you have your Bible, please open with me to the book of John. Open with me to the book of John or the gospel of John. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're in week two of our series, The Gospel According to John. These are written, these things are written so that you might believe. And last week, uh, we looked at uh, Jesus' encounter with um, with the religious people. Jesus' encounter with those who, who thought they were going to heaven, but they had no real relationship with Jesus Christ. And we also saw his encounter and interaction with Nicodemus, where Jesus told him, you must be born again. And we looked at what that meant. What does salvation mean? So today, though, um, it looks like we only really have one one parent or uh, I have a younger kid in here so I'm going to be hitting on a heavy topic so you may have questions when you guys go home. Um, So today I'm going to be talking to us uh, not only about captivity to sin but we're going to see two passages of scripture where we see women who were in captivity to sexual sin to sexual sin, and how this is uh, rampant in our culture. So we started this series in John, and we've looked at different people who couldn't believe. We, we looked at people, how, uh, how we saw those who had difficult questions for Jesus. We looked at those who wanted to believe, but for some reason, they could not believe. But in the coming weeks, we're going to see people who were distracted. We're going to see people who were hurt and disappointed. We're going to see people who were cowards and, and skeptics here in the Gospel of John. But today we're going to look at moral failure. We're going to look at moral failure today. Now, there are those here in today's scripture that, that could not believe because they were captives to their sin. They were captives. Now, by, by captive and, or sexual captive is, is what I will refer to. I'm not talking about or referring to the sex trade, meaning that they were taken and sold into sex slavery. As evil as that is, this is not what's going on here. I'm referring to people who were so captivated by their own fleshly lust that it kept them from entering in. It, it kept them from even considering the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, there are those that we will also address today that are held captive by the mistakes of their past. Those who who feel like they can no longer come to Christ because I continue to fall into the same thing over and over and over again. Now please, please, I I would encourage you this morning as your pastor, you may not be in this building and dealing with some um, heinous sexual lust or sin in your life, but sin can keep you captive. It doesn't matter if it's sexual sin or if it's lying or or whatever it is. And so please don't tune me out this morning because there's something that we can learn in these passages of scripture. Now we're going we're gonna to look quickly at two, two portions, John chapter 4 and, and John chapter 8. Now I just want to say something real quick before we begin to, to read anything further. Out of all of the passages of scripture that we will cover um, and look at, this one right here seems to be the most relevant for our culture. The most relevant for our culture. I've read, uh, as you guys know, I'm I'm an avid reader. And I I have read uh, statistic after statistic as of late uh, that really showed me two main reasons why people walk away from faith. Or two reasons why people won't come to Christianity. And the number two reason is the problem of evil. If God is so good, 
If God is so loving, why does he allow evil to happen? That was the number two reason why people walk away from Christianity or why people won't come to Christianity at all. But the number one reason, the number one reason why people will depart Christianity or will not come to it is a desire for sexual freedom. A desire for sexual freedom. If, if what you want to do conflicts with your beliefs, culture says either live as a hypocrite or change your beliefs. That's what our culture tells people in this day and age. And many in our culture opt for the latter. They'll just change their beliefs. They'll just walk away. How interesting is this? Uh, does anyone know uh, a man by the name of Aldous Huxley? I was hoping nobody would know who he was. Aldous Huxley was the man who coined the term agnostic. Agnostic. 75 years ago, he said this, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. For myself, and as no doubt for my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaningless was essentially an instrument of liberation for us. Liberation from a certain system of morality. We object to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom, is what he stated. That's how he, why he coined the term agnostic, or one who could not say he believed that a God existed. He then goes on to say, there was one simple math, uh, method of confuting with Christians and justifying ourselves in our erotic uh, revolt. He said we could deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. That was the one, one way that we could refute anything of Christianity. Deny that the world has meaning. Just deny it. You know, we have in our, in our society what I would say an obsession with sex. Sexual identity, gender dysphoria, it's all over, inundated in our culture. It's on the TV. It's in movies. It's in books. It's in magazines. It's on commercials now. I, I had a TV show on uh, just the other day, and it's a very rarity that we have um, TV on in our home. But we had a, a kid's show on through uh, some TV app that had commercials. And every commercial in this 15-minute show that we were watching with our children was inundated with those who were struggling in some way about what their gender identity was. Or how many mommies and how many daddies they had in every commercial on our child's TV show. Our, our culture is inundated. And I don't mean that people just enjoy it. I mean we are obsessed with anything that is the topic of sex. You see it in supermarkets. As you stand in line, every other magazine, it seems like, is, is how to drive your man wild. How to shake your bed across the floor. It's even now inundating magazines that have nothing to do with it. We were at Meyer the other day and I saw a field and stream magazine, a hunting and fishing magazine. And the title on the front of it was How to Get Your Girl in the Blind. It's completely inundating our culture. And as I was writing this, I began to think about the shocking success of the book trilogy, The Fifty Shades of Grey, and the movies that came with it. You know, Barnes & Noble 
released a report to their shareholders that said that the foot traffic and their stores across the United States had substantially increased to nearly 40% more just because of that three-book series, The Fifty Shades of Grey. 40% increase in sales. The trilogy dominated the New York Times bestseller list of one, two, and three for months and months and months. And it even went on as writers of CNN and the New York Times, and they penned the phrase, this is mommy porn. That was the phrase that they used for the book and the movies that came out. Church, I want to make something very, very, very clear to us this morning. There is nothing, nothing that will destroy your faith and dull your spiritual appetite faster than a captivity to sexual lust. Church, there is nothing that will destroy your faith and dull your spiritual appetite faster than a captivity to sexual lust. I want to start off by making a couple of things clear this morning. God is the creator of sex. God is the creator of sex. He designed sex to be a union between a husband and a wife to be a beautiful picture of his communion with his believers, with, with his church, with his, with his family, with his children. It was to be used not only to, to combine and, and make union between husband and wife, but it was also to glorify God. It was to be an act of worship because it was something that was deemed good God is not surprised that we enjoy that act that he has given to us. He designed it that way. It is a good gift of God, and it's given by him to his children for their enjoyment and his glory. But I have learned in my very young 32 years of life is that God's gifts to us, we can go wrong with them. We can use and abuse the gifts that God gives. And, and, and I've learned also that the greater the gift of God, the more capacity it has to damage us. He didn't, he didn't create it that way, but because of our flesh, we take it that way. You know, Jesus looks at, at these, two, these two women that we're going to see in passages, these passages this morning. The, these two people... For them, sex had gone terribly wrong and done all kinds of damage. All kinds of damage. So if you would, pick up with me in verse number 1 of John chapter 4. And now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he, um, as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw, draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Jesus said, give me a drink. Now we're going to stop right there. I want to give us a little context about what's going on here. Some, the Samaritans in the Bible were a small, hated community of people in Israel, okay? The animosity that was between the Israelites and the Samaritans stretched back nearly a thousand years prior to John even writing this. It happened because the northern part of Israel had seceded from the south, and they went their separate way, and they began to 
to grow unfaithful to God. They began to, to worship idols. And so in, in probably around the year 772 BC, God allowed the Syrians uh, to conquer them. And in those days, when, when you conquered another nation, you didn't want that nation to repopulate and revolt against you. So you would remove half of them. And they took them away, and they began uh, to, to allow for their own people to mate with the, with the Israelites. It was done on purpose. And then they would send in people for those who stayed behind or who were left in the area. It, it, was, it, was, it was to make sure that the majority were carried off into exile, but there was no way that they would have any cultural identity left. It was the purpose to eliminate it completely. Well, the sad thing that we see in Scripture is that the northern kingdom of Israel did not resist the integration. They freely embraced the Assyrians. They freely married the Assyrians. They integrated with their culture. They began to worship their own gods. And so the, Israel, the, the southern kingdom of Israel thought of themselves as the only real Israel left. And they saw the Samaritans as compromisers. They saw them as half-breeds. And around the year 100 B.C., a renegade Jew by the name of Manasseh defected to Samaria. He defected. He left. And he began to establish new places of worship around some of the ancient historic sites of Samaria, places like Jacob's well, claiming that the Jewish temple was now corrupt. So the Samaritans were now seen as a cult by the Israelites. They were corrupt. And so the Samaritans used some of the Old Testament books like the, the Pentateuch or the, the first five books of the Bible. And they omitted several things from Scripture that were too Jewish. They just removed them completely. Books like the Psalms. There was no Psalms in the Samaritan nation at all. There was so much animosity that if you went through this place, you would either be killed or you would be defiled. And so everyone would take an extra six days to travel around Samaria just so they didn't get killed or defiled. And we see here in Scripture that Jesus is now a, a one who encounters a Samaritan woman. And I want you to notice the detail in Scripture here. Notice the detail. It says that Jesus was wearied from his journey and was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour. That's noon. That is in the middle of the day. Has anyone ever done any research or read anything about the Middle East or ever been there? Been to the Middle East at all? You, listen, the middle of the day is the hottest part of the day in the Middle East. You don't go out. You try to find the coolest place to live, but this woman had to go at noon. There was no other time for her to go. Why? Because she was hated by the others. She was the outcast of the outcast. She was the one that, that had slept with multiple people. And this was the only time she could go. And to me, I find this entire account shocking. Shocking, especially what we see in verse number 8 as Jesus begins to communicate. He says, give me a drink at the end of seven. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They have no dealings. Now I want you to, to look real quick with me. 
that the pause in our Bible between verse 8 and verse 9 looks very, very, very short. But I can tell you this was probably one of the most awkward exchanges this woman had ever had. Why? Because Jews and Samaritans have no dealings with one another. And she's like, why are you talking to me, Jesus? Why? She has no idea this is the Messiah. But look at how Jesus replies. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He would have given you living water. Now at this point, she, of course, thinks he's still talking about physical water. And you can see by her reply, look at verse 11. Look at ver- The woman says, sir, you have nothing to draw water with in the well is deep, so where do you get that living water? She's questioning Jesus yet again. How are you going to give this to me? But you can almost see, look at verse 12. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? She's questioning Jesus. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. You can almost hear the edge in her voice as she's questioning God. She didn't like him. Are you, are you greater than our father Jacob? So look at verse 13. And so Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Look at 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. We begin to see the very first evidences of faith in the woman's life, but she still is clueless. Still is clueless. Look at 16. Jesus says to her, go, call your husband and come here. If you are writing the musical score for this this passage of scripture, this is the dun, dun, dun portion of scripture. Go call your husband. Go call your husband and then come back here. So look at what happens now in verse 17. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five, and the one you now have is not your husband. So what you have said is true. So what you have said is true. And just like that, I think all of this water talk begins to make sense. Just in this moment of time, you see this woman daily coming to get a water and drink it, but waking up the next morning thirsty yet again and has to continually go back to that well. She, she has gone to the well of romance to satisfy the thirst of her soul, and it wouldn't satisfy her. It would only give her some temporary satisfaction, but ultimately it left her thirsting for more. She had not not two, not three, not four, but five husbands. And she's now with somebody else who's not. She got out of one marriage and into another. And time and time again, she thought she had found what she was looking for, but it didn't work. And she would wake up the next morning feeling thirsty, wanting to go to something else, to the point where she walked away from the institution of marriage altogether. What she does every single day With the water pot for her physical thirst, she was doing with sex and lust and idolatry for her soul's thirst. For her soul's thirst. Look with me now at verse number 19. Verse number 19 and 20. 
said, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Stop there. Do you see what she's doing? She's gotten to a place where she's now completely uncomfortable, and so she asked Jesus a hard, theological, controversial worship question. She, she doesn't want to go into the five marriages. She doesn't want to go into the relationship where she's at right now, but she wants to throw this theological question at, at Jesus to get the wrong off of her, to, to turn it around. She wanted to fly up in the intellectual with hard theological questions. And listen, as a pastor and as counseling people for almost seven or eight years now in ministry, I see this all the time. I see it all the time. I start to talk with somebody uh, about Jesus, uh, about what God's word says, and they're like, oh yeah, well, well, w- what about those who never hear the gospel? Or, or they'll turn it really quickly and they're like, well, what about homosexuality? What about abortion? And then they go to all of the controversial topics and I'm like, whoa, 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 that's, that's not what's going on here. That's, that's not, those are very important questions that they are. And when we should have a biblical understanding a biblical worldview of how we respond to those issues. But that's not the issue right now. You're never ever going to get anywhere. Never are you going to get anywhere with Jesus until you let him ask you the most important question is, is where are you going in life? Where are you going in life? Jesus calls her out. And they begin this lengthy conversation that ends with Jesus telling this woman that God wants her in spirit and in truth. He wants to know her fully. This this woman here in scripture has not lived the truth out for a long time. For years, she lived a lie. For years, she covered her shame and her hurt with more shame and more hurt. She's like bandaging papering up the the, the God-sized hole in her life. There was this part of her that that was dead, that had been dead for so long. Her shame and her hurt just kept her shut off from God, from other people, even from herself. She'd chosen the easier path to deal with her void. You guys ever find yourself there? not asking what it is. You ever find that you, you take the easier path to fill that void? The one that you know rightfully belongs to God? Jesus, in this portion of scripture, is saying, I want to give my assurance of love. I want to give my assurance of, of acceptance. I, I want to heal you of that shame and that guilt and the love that, that, that she wants from God is what she's been craving. Jesus wants to give her the two things that she wants. To be fully loved and fully known. To be fully loved and fully known. You know, I counsel people all the time and I come to those two conclusions most generally. The human dilemma is that people want to be fully loved and fully known. And the only person that can do that as Christ. 
The only person that can fully know us and fully love us is, is Christ. And Jesus wants to give her that love, and he speaks about it here. So now I want to I wanna just say something real quick before we go in now to John chapter 8. When I say um, Jesus here is giving her full acceptance, he's saying, I accept you. Our culture has completely used and abused the, the word acceptance. Our culture says acceptance is you allow me to live out my truth. You allow me to live in my sin and you live the way that you want to live. That's what the culture says is acceptance. This is not biblical acceptance. Biblical acceptance says that Jesus will take you exactly where you're at, but he doesn't want you to stay there. He wants you to change. Why? Because the closer you get to God, the less you can look like yourself. The less you can look like yourself. And so biblical acceptance, when I say Jesus accepted her, he took her right where she was at. Five marriages deep, he took her right where she was at, saying, I will fully love you. I will fully know you, but you cannot stay the way that you are. You have to change. You have to change. And so please, please don't mistake biblical acceptance versus cultural cultural acceptance those are two different things so now jump with me to john chapter 8 so now real quick i'm going to make a, a theological statement to you there are two portions two portions of the new testament that, that some Bibles will either have it off to the side in the bracket or it will be bracketed in in some way or some versions of the Bible will not have this portion of Scripture as well as the end of Mark chapter 9 uh, in your Bible. Why? Because some theologians uh, believe that the earliest manuscripts did not uh, include these portions of Scripture. Uh, they, they believe that. Now, there are a few versions of the Bible have put this back in because there have been writings that were found that run co and coincide with other portions of Scripture. So if you have a version of the Bible that either doesn't have it in there or it's in brackets of some sort or it's off in the margin somewhere, you may have a note if you have a study Bible. But just wanted to bring clarity to that before I start reading. So now in, in verse number 1 of chapter 8, and they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Now, I want you to stop right there. A woman caught in adultery. The Greek syntax here, the, the phrase that John used, mean that she was caught in the very act of. This wasn't they heard about it after and they got clarification. No, she was caught in the very act of adultery. And it says that he, they brought her into the midst of Jesus. Listen, commentators think right here in this portion of scripture that this woman was half-dressed or completely naked because of the phrasing that was used. It, it, regardless of, of what that piece is, it's, it's not really important to us, but she was caught in the act of adultery. That's the important part. She's shamed, she's humiliated, and we're not even sure where the guy is. We're not sure. But she's placed now in the midst of the people, and Jesus is standing there. Look at verse number four. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, we are commanded to stone such a woman. So what do you say? 
This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. But Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with this woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You want to know what captivates me about this portion of Scripture? Tied to the last one is Jesus' response to this woman. And the order in which he said it. Neither do I condemn you, so go and sin no more. You know, in our flesh, I was talking with the prayer team about this this morning. In our flesh, that the flesh rises up in us quite frequently. Would you guys agree with that? In our flesh, we want to reverse that. We want to say, you have to change before you're accepted. You have to change what you're doing before you're accepted. That was the Pharisee way. The Pharisee way, change. You have to make yourself look good and pretty before you come to Jesus. That's not what he said. He said, he said, go. I don't condemn you, so go and sin no more. Go. You don't have to because I accept you. I'm taking you right where you are. We, we, we want to charge people with their sin as though we're the one that's judged. How often do you look at somebody because they dress differently than you, because they look differently than you, because they've got tattoos and piercings, because they're completely covered, because they go to a different restaurant than you, because they drive a different kind of car, because they read a different version of the Bible. We say change has to come before acceptance. That's not what Christ said. Christ said, I will take you in the mess right where you are at, and I'm the one that pulls you out of it. The gospel reverses what we in our humanness think. You know, Jesus knew she would never have the ability to break free of that idolatry until she felt the embrace of God. He knew, church, please do not miss this. God's acceptance is the power that liberates us from sin. It's the power that, it's not the reward for having liberated ourselves. God's power liberates us from sin, not not ourselves. We can't save and rescue ourselves out of our sinfulness. Salvation was the gift given to the undeserving people, just like these two women in scripture, which lifts them out of their captivity to sin, which means this, when, when my wife and I, for those of you who, who know, most of you do, my wife and I spent about 10, uh, 12 years or so as, as youth pastors. Um, over the course of that span of time, um, we probably interacted with somewhere in the ballpark of uh, 1,500 to 2,000 teenagers that came through our youth ministry. Um, Whenever my wife and I would have to talk with a young lady um, or a young man who had lost their virginity, um, we didn't just tell them about the dangers of having sex outside of marriage. 
We didn't just talk about the shamefulness and the sinfulness of the act itself. We didn't just talk about how they were messing up their marriage, but we talked about how they had a God who cared for them as well. And in the very midst of that, that he came down from heaven for that sin. We, we wanted them to know that he took that shame of the sin upon himself so that he could wash them in the blood and make them righteous in the eyes of God. We didn't, we didn't just throw all of the shame and guilt upon them, but we showed them the other side too. Why? Why? Well, because we knew that the only way that they would ever break away from that disastrous decision would be to see that there is a father whose attention is way better than what they're searching for in any man or woman here upon the earth. Or for the guy or gal who we had to sit down with in my office, sit with parents because they, they had fallen to pornography. Yeah, I would tell them about how damaging it is. But I would tell them, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, I'm the glory of God, and you're the glory of God, and you're the glory of God as long as you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You're the glory of God. Jesus purchased, Jesus purchased you. Jesus purchased me. Jesus purchased your neighbor and your boss and your coworker, and your sibling, and your spouse, Jesus, Jesus purchased you. So now we have to begin to live that way. We have to begin to live as though we've been purchased. We have to begin to walk in the forgiveness that he has given as a gift, regardless of how you struggle. I really wish, honestly, that you guys all could have been here on Wednesday night at our Bible study. At the end of our Bible study, there was an individual that got onto a topic about um, struggling with the same, same sin over and over and over again. And this, this right here, this is it. And I asked in that room, how many of you struggle with the same sin repetitively over and over? I would say at least 80% of the people in that room raised their hand. I didn't, I didn't ask them to come up and, and confess and say Hail Marys. Um, I asked them to, to, to just raise your hand. Church, Jesus liberates you from the power of sin, not by holding out a reward for you in front of yourself, but by saying, come to me, and I will make you whole. I will, I will know you. I will love you. I will complete that God-sized hole inside of you. Your, your captivity for sin, church, is too great for you to overcome alone. You have to be liberated by Jesus Christ. And guess what? Jesus took that, that, that pain, that wrath upon himself, and he suffered for your consequences of sin. He suffered in your place for sin. And that's how he breaks the power of sin in your life. That's how he sets the captive or the prisoner free. His blood not only released you from the penalty of sin, but it also released you from the power of sin. It released you from the power 
Paul talked about so, listen, if you're in here and you're struggling repetitively with a sin, go back and read Romans 6, 7, and 8 and read them over and over and over and over again until it begins to sink in to, to, to your life. Paul talked about over and over, should I continue in my sin lest grace would abound? And he goes, no, wretched man that I am. And then he goes on to say, why do I do the things that I hate and yet I don't do the things I know I should? But then what does he say in chapter 8? As a child of God, the Holy Spirit will resonate with the Spirit inside of me to claim that I am a child of God. There's nothing that can be formed against me. I can walk. I can walk with God because I am a child of God. So often we live this life walking in self-condemnation and we don't walk in the forgiveness that's already been given. And people stay captive to their sin. I see it over and over and over as a pastor. And to be honest with you, it breaks my heart. Listen, I know what it's like. I struggled with pornography for 11 years of my life. I felt like I couldn't get away. I felt like it was destroying everything in my entire life. It made me angry. It made me mean. I treated my wife with so much disrespect. I know what it's like to continue. I know what it's like to go a week or two weeks and feel like you're good and then bam, you fall again. I know what that's like. But church, the power of God, the power of God within you can free you. You don't have to be a captive anymore. This Christmas Eve, I will be eight years pornography free by the grace of God. By the grace of God. You don't have to do this alone. I'm so going to walk away from my notes at the moment. If you're in here this morning and you're struggling with a repeated sin, you keep falling to it time and time again. You're not alone. There are people right here in this building who will walk alongside of you in that process. They will guide you closer to God. They will be an accountability for you. And I'm, I'm starting right here and I'll say, I'm do, I'll do it. There are people in this room who I've walked alongside of because, because I believe there is freedom in, in, in the name of Jesus Christ. There is power, right? We were singing it earlier. There is power in the mighty name of Jesus. So please, please come up here after service. Please come and talk to, to me or, or one of our prayer team after the service if that's you. If that's you. Christ wants to take your, your shame so you can be made righteous. But there are three things I want for us to know this morning. Three thoughts that I have, and I'm going to try and fly through this because we're just about out of time. The first thing I want you to know is that sex is not just a physical thing. 
sex is not just in the pagan world they think that sex is just for the body they think it's just like biology it's like eating a meal or or taking a nap but the bible puts a much vaster and higher and more exalted view upon marriage and upon sex it says this in in first corinthians 6 18 it says flee from sexual immorality that means anything that is outside the biblical context of marriage it says every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body the bible presents sex to us in a covenant relationship in which physical oneness is accompanied by oneness in every other area that's how it's it's laid out for us think of of the posture of sex of two becoming one infused together as they are no longer two do you know that god designed our bodies to be psychosomatic it's a term that means that our body and mind and emotion and soul are all interconnected. And so one is always affecting the other. Physical oneness was to be matched by oneness in every other area for a lifelong commitment. Lifelong commitment. Having sex physically or having your lusts fulfilled in your thoughts and mind outside of a full person covenant tears apart the integrity of another individual. It literally will disintegrate you from the inside out. You know, I read a book several years ago called Hooked. It was a scientific study that was written by a couple of neurologists um, that showed that those who have multiple sex partners, those who fantasize or use pornography, especially when you're young, it destroys the brain. And they begin to explain how. It rewires the brain in such a way that it makes genuine, lasting, selfless relationships difficult to have. By the way, it was not a Christian book. The authors have, have appeared to have no Christian agenda. This is from a scientific standpoint. They said this, the individual or individuals are causing his or her brain to mold in such a way that it will eventually accept that pattern as normal. They go on to say that the pattern therefore seems to damage their ability to bond in any committed relationship. That kind of attachment damage that occurs in many respects is more pernicious than an STD that someone may get from it. Because it typically goes unperceived by the affected individual while causing ongoing difficulties and establishing lifelong and satisfying relationships. They then closed out the book by saying the very act or the thoughts of sex produce a new reality that cannot be undone. That's how they closed it out. You know, there was an article in the Telegraph, which is London's version of the New York Times. And that article praised what they called the sexual revolution and said that our culture needs to finish it. They need to finish it. The author said that sex is no more a moral issue than eating a good meal. That's what they compared it to. The fact that we eat meals at home with spouses and partners does not preclude eating out in restaurants to sample different cuisines. They were embracing the, the fact of having polygamous type relationships. And I thought to myself, is that all sex is? Is that it? As I was reading this article, I was completely blown away, and intuitively, we know that that's not true. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, said that you know the way people are wrong in their view when they never can live up to their own ideals and are constantly taking the morals of other people so they can get through life. He then went on to say 
He went on to say then that if you embraced, and you're talking, this was 60 years ago. C.S. Lewis said if you begin to embrace the culture's way of thinking on the topic of gender identity, you're walking into the hands of Satan. 60 years ago, it was already spoken. I want, I want us to see something. I want us to understand, and I've been trying to show you all morning, that God's rules are never arbitrary. God's rules, at the end of the day, have been commanded because he's in charge. You know, a, a verse that I, I love to run to when I, I counsel in marriages that struggle with these types of things is from the book of Hebrews chapter 13, and it says that marriage is honorable in all and the bed should be undefiled, but the sexually immoral and adulterous God will judge. God will judge. You know, I've often said that if you're the kind of person who has to be persuaded that Jesus is right about something before you will obey him, you need to rethink your understanding and concept of him being your Lord. If you, if you have to be persuaded that, that the Bible is right, you know, I say this as your pastor, that I've seen this multiple times. There is nothing that will destroy the work of God faster in your life than sexual sin. It blinds the eyes, it dulls the heart, it corrupts the motives. And as I mentioned earlier, the Fifty Shades of Grey series. I, I just want to have a heart-to-heart -heart with you, church. I just want to have a heart-to-heart -heart with you. I have seen on social media constantly, constantly, people linked to churches, people calling themselves Christians, that are reading that type of material. They're reading romance novels. People that are watching that type of TV. Watching and embracing those types of movies. And things that have that content. And they're listening to music that promotes that type of lifestyle. People who are linked to churches or people that I know in my life that call themselves Christians. There was even a book that was released and then a movie that just came out just recently by someone who is labeled as a Christian author. A book called Redeeming Love. It's a book that just released a movie and I watched the, the or I read the reviews from a place called Common Sense Media and Plugged In, which are Christian organizations. And in the reviews, it got a four out of five stars for sexual content in the movie. And they, they started off as a Christian film. Go and watch it because it's a Christian film. Over and over in the movie, there is partial nudity. There are sex scenes being implied. Church, I don't see any way at all possible how we can fellowship with Jesus on one hand and immerse ourselves on the other in all of that. I don't see how it's possible. I get bothered just seeing something on the TV in a commercial that's going to be gone in 15 seconds. My wife doesn't even like to watch movies because of it. Why? Because God has stirred so much inside of us that we don't want to look like the world. Not because we want to be better than anybody. Not because we want to condemn somebody who does those things. But because I'm going to stand before God one day and give an account of every single thing that I said and did. And I do not want him to say, Josh, why are you looking at that? 
Josh, why are you reading that type of material? Why are you listening to that type of music? Why? Church, it's so hard for me to see our culture. It's so hard for me, even worse, to see people in Christian circles uh, that, that would immerse themselves in the very thing that Jesus died for. He died for those things, and yet our culture lauds them like they're the greatest things in the world. It's hard for me to see how that cannot give the Christian extreme torment in the soul. Extreme torment. CNN called it mommy porn. Mommy porn. They're not condemning it. They're just calling it what it is. They're literally just calling it. And and I see the complaint. I see the complaint from people all the time. Women bring it up about, about their spouses looking at porn and how it distorts how they look at women. And it creates an unrealistic expectation. And the guy's wife could never, ever live up to the airbrushed image that they see on the screen. And that's absolutely true. But the same way, those who are reading or listening uh, about unnatural things that are so disconnected from reality of any type of covenant faithfulness are destroying the capacity to be a follower of Jesus Christ and live within the context of that union. If you're single in here, that speaks to you too. Your, Your marriage as a single person is to Jesus Christ. As a couple, you as a couple are united one, married to Jesus Christ as a believer. And you're destroying the very thing that Christ himself instituted. Serious. Sex is not just physical. The one who sins sexually, whether active in physical form or in their thoughts, sins against his own body. It destroys your walk with God. It tears apart the soul and your capacity for anything that's healthy. The second thing I want us to see is that sex is driven by soul thirst. It's driven by soul thirst. You know, at the heart of all sin is idolatry. Our our craving is often driven by the vacuum that is left in the absence of God because we have walked away. That's That's what we see in these two women here. How many of you have ever heard of the man Josh McDowell? He's an author, Josh McDowell. He said that sex is not the answer. It's really an expression of the question. It's an expression of the question. The state of our soul is thirsty. We thirst for love. We want perfect acceptance and unconditional love. And we look for it first in our parents. And if we don't get it from them, then we develop all sorts of dysfunctions. And we we thirst for purpose to know that we are important or we matter to somebody. And we thirst for peace in our conscience because everybody in some way, shape, or form struggles with guilt. We're guilty and we want someone to say that we're okay. And so we look for these things in our thoughts. We look for them in people and drugs and alcohol and food. But none of those things can provide them. There was a pastor and an author uh, by the name of Tim Keller. Um, He wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. Uh, If you want to copy of it or you're interested in it stop by the connection point today Um, but it's a book called counterfeit gods and and he says this that we can do like this woman in john chapter 4 and keep giving ourselves away to more people but that just compounds the problem and it multiplies our guilt because there is a deep innate part of us that knows that it's wrong 
He goes on to say that when, everyone, when anyone says to me, I struggle with guilt about my past, I always see that it's sexually related in some way, shape, or form. Sex was God's profound statement of covenant loyalty within marriage, and it's often a quest to find something you can only find in God. And it's driven by soul thirst. But as I read through this passage of Scripture, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, I can't read through John chapter 4 and John chapter 8 without thinking of Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah said this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jeremiah was telling them that they have drunk from wells that, that will not satisfy. Imagine with me for just a moment that you're dying of thirst, and the only thing that you have to grab to drink is a bottle of pancake syrup. Yes, it's going to be sweet, and it's going to taste really well when you're drinking it, but it's going to leave you thirstier than what you were before. Studies show that if you're dehydrated out at sea, you will have the incredible desire for, for salt water, to guzzle salt water. And it will satisfy you only for a moment, but a split second later, you will be thirstier than you were before. And that's how bodily pleasure works. That's how it works when it's done outside of God. Things on the earth, church, things on the earth can never fully satisfy you when you're not made up of just earth. You're made up of heaven too. When you're made up of heaven too, when earthly pleasures at the expense of heavenly ones come, it's like drinking salt water. You're going to continually thirst for more. And I love the contrast here between the spring and the cistern. The cistern, if it fails to rain, it completely dries up. If you throw mud and dirt into a cistern, it will clog it. But a spring, when you throw mud and dirt into a spring, eventually that spring is going to burst forth. That living water is going to continue to flow, and that's the gospel liberation that Jesus is talking about here. It's what liberates you from the downward cycle of your sinfulness. It shows you a love that is better and more sustaining than anything that you can fantasize or have here upon this earth. Listen, the love that we are all seeking does not come from the 50 shades of gray. It exists in the love of the Father to the one that feels in this room that you have no more worth because you've given yourself away time and time again to your sinfulness. The gospel shows how incredibly valuable you are. You're worth enough for Jesus to die for you. Jesus values each and every one of our bodies and souls, and he died so much to clean it and make it new. The gospel that gives us power over our desires. Church, listen, son, uh, lust is the sin of imagination. And we're told that we are to cast down, cast down imaginations. Every high and lofty thought, take them obedient to the captive, uh, and captiva uh, captivate or captive obedience of Jesus Christ. But we need to counter our thoughts by enlarging our capacity for truth. The answer to lust is to believe in truth. 
The answer to lust is to believe in truth. Church, that's so much more than an intellectual process. So much more. We need to let the truth capture our thinking. We need to meditate upon it. We need to ponder it. We need to wonder at it. We need to sing it to ourselves. We must feel the truth and glory in the truth and delight in the truth in order to overcome our sins. It's the only way to be freed as a captive from any sin that we have. Listen, the the problem is not that your desire for sin is too strong. It's that your love for Jesus is too weak. It's not that your sin is too strong. It's that your love of Jesus is too weak. But your love for Jesus grows the more we understand about him, the more we know him, the more time we spend with him. When we look at him, we see him crucified. Man, and how, how great a price he paid to redeem us. And learn to think it a small thing to bring bodily desires under his control. We must learn to think it a small thing to use self-control. I just want to close with this, church. I, I know it's a little bit late. I want to give you one last objection and I, I think that as I was putting this together I, I told my wife this is probably going to bring about a lot of questions so I'll be available down here for those who have questions but there's one last objection that I hear constantly from people I hear people say over and over and over that they know God forgives them but I can't forgive myself I'm going to mess with your theology a little bit the thought of forgiving yourself is not biblical. The thought of forgiving yourself is not biblical. Nowhere in the Bible are you taught that you have to forgive yourself. And it sounds humble, really, when you say it. It sounds really, really humble, but it's really a disbelief in the gospel. When you say, I can't forgive, it's a disbelief in the gospel. You have some standard that you feel that you have to reach before you have any worth, and you're saying that Jesus' suffering was not enough when you say that I can't forgive myself. You're saying that the esteem of the gift of salvation that Jesus gives is not good enough for your sinfulness. When you say, I can't forgive myself, you're walking in what we call self-condemnation. You're saying, I can't walk in the forgiveness that's already been given to me. Listen, you cannot forgive yourself, church. You must walk in the forgiveness that's given to you through the shed blood of Jesus Christ when you accept him as your Lord and Savior. That's the only forgiveness that you get to have. And guess what? It's a great gift that you get to have and if you believe if you believe that you must forgive yourself then you're an idolater and you do not believe in the gospel church I'm just telling you like it is the moment that you think that your opinion is weightier than that of God's you're an idolater you're an idolater That's why Moses said, thou shalt have no other God before me. The very top of the list of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other God before me. You can't break commandments two through ten until you've broken number one. You've had some other God before him. Church, we must learn to walk in forgiveness. We must stop casting condemnation upon ourselves walk in truth 
walk in truth. Fill yourself with Christ and thirst no more. Last week it was look and live. This week it's come and be filled. Come and be filled. So I want to challenge us with something. If you guys would just bow your heads and close your eyes. I know this was a very unorthodox message. It covered a very weighty and heavy topic. One that's culture saturated. But I'm, I can't help but think of the people that, that could be possibly sitting in this room that are struggling with some of these very things. Struggling with the, the constant falling into a sinful pattern. Maybe it's lust, maybe it's not. Maybe it's a dependence upon a substance. Maybe it's a bad relationship. Maybe it's your mouth. Maybe it's what you watch. Maybe it's what you read. Where you go. Who you interact with. I can't help but, but believe that we'd be sitting in a, in a room like this where nobody would be struggling with any of these things. But the challenge this morning is for the believer to begin to walk in that forgiveness. Seek help. Come up here with your questions. Come up here with your concerns. Talk to one of our, our prayer partners. Talk to myself. Make an appointment with me if you have to. Let's begin to walk through that process. Maybe you're in here and, and you're like, I don't even know what that means. I, I don't even know how to follow Christ. Guess what? We can point you in the direction. We can, we can point you to someone who can walk alongside of you. Maybe you need discipleship. You need accountability. I want to challenge you this morning with something that I wouldn't typically do. But I'm going to ask those of you who are struggling in any of these ways, the, the repetitive sinfulness within us. I'm going, to, I'm going to challenge you to get out of your seats this morning. I'm going to challenge you to, to come to the front as soon as I pray and we dismiss. I'm going to challenge you to come talk to one of us. Pray, pray with us. Church, we will never, ever, ever have our eyes fully upon Christ if we're constantly looking at our issues and problems and how we can fill ourselves with something next. Begin to walk in that truth, church. Begin to love that truth. Begin to saturate your mind with that truth. Turn, turn. Repentance is to turn from sin and self and to turn towards Christ. And so who are you turning to this morning? Who, are, who or what are you turning to this morning? Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning and we thank you for this day that you have given to us. We thank you for these, these passages of scripture, Lord, that are hard to, to read or, or maybe to fully understand. But God, we love the truth that comes with them. We love that your word touches on every topic and, and it gives us peace and knowledge for what we, what we should do, where our feet should go next. So God, guide us in this. Help us to, to take these things, to learn from them, to grow. Give us a fresh mindset uh, about our, our thinking, about our desires. God, fill us. Fill us in this place. Help us to see victories in areas that we thought we could never find victory. Give us boldness and courage to keep stepping out and to keep moving even when we don't want to, even when it's hard, even when we fail. Give us strength. Help us to, to rise up. As those who have a selfless faith, use us here, God. Use us in this community, in our workplaces. 
Help us to bring this freedom to, to people that we know in our circles of influence who are struggling. But God, most of all, help everything that we do, everything that we put our hands to, help it to glorify you. God, make sure, like was prayed earlier, that we would be used, but that we would lessen so that your presence could increase. Move in this place as we go from here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen.